welcome to another episode of FinTech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson. I am the author and creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter. And joining me, as he always does, the publisher of FinTech Business Weekly, Jason Mikula. Jason, how are you? I am uh, doing pretty well, thanks. And I'm uh, excited to say that we have a special guest uh, this month. As listeners will probably know, Alex and I uh, like to talk about crypto, but I'm not sure that we're actually either of us uh, deeply experts in it. I think we both tend to focus on where the crypto ecosystem intersects with more consumer-oriented products or the traditional financial services ecosystem. Uh, so I'm very happy to say that this week we have uh, Edward Woodford, the CEO of a crypto infrastructure as a service company called ZeroHash, uh, which provides the backend functionality for crypto products offered through consumer apps uh, such as MoneyLion, Step, DraftKings, and Deserve. Uh, so hopefully sitting you know, directly at the intersection of uh, Alex and, and my favorite topics. Um, Edward, welcome to the show. And can you give us sort of a quick uh, intro on your background and on ZeroHash? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, so ZeroHash was founded in 2017, and we are effectively um, infrastructure as a service. We enable any group to launch crypto natively within their own application, whether that be buy, sell, hold, send, receive, roundups, rewards, or even stake. And as you mentioned, we work with a range of fintechs and financial services companies, ranging from neobanks to broker-dealers uh, to payment groups to rewards companies, and then more recently, um, consumer brands as they begin to enter into Web3. And you mentioned one of those, which is which is DraftKings. Fantastic. I mean, with, um, with that intro, uh, should we kick it off to the first story, Alex? Yeah, yeah. I think our first story is um, one that everyone in the ecosystem has been paying obsessive attention to. So Jason, I'll let you do a quick intro and then very much want Edward to jump in and share his thoughts. Yeah, so we are going to get started with the uh, Terra Luna ecosystem collapse. And, uh, you know, I won't beat a uh, dead horse here too much, given that there's been much ink, many podcast hours spilled about this story uh, already. But the uh, the fundamentals for those who maybe less familiar is uh, Terra or Terra USD, uh, which was purportedly a USD linked stablecoin, uh, collapsed along with its uh, related sort of sister coin, Luna. Uh, and it's it's important to note that Terra uh, is a so-called algorithmic stablecoin. So unlike other stablecoins uh, that are popular, such as uh, Tether or USDC, which is issued by Circle, uh, Terra did not specifically have an asset backing it. Rather, it used a system of incentives uh, to motivate arbitrage between the Terra coin and the related Luna coin to attempt to maintain that $1, one USD dollar peg. So at its height, there was around 19 billion of Terra USD in circulation, in addition to about 40 billion USD worth of Luna in circulation. And both of those basically collapsed to about zero over the course of one, one week. Uh, or so. Um, you know, this presents you know, a fertile ground for a lot of different topics, a lot of different directions we can go. Uh, but something that, that I caught uh, note of that was interesting to me 
was there were various products built on top of this ecosystem. Uh, so for instance, there was one called Stable Gains, uh, which was essentially a front end that simplified the process of users who you know, may not have the sophistication or may not want to navigate the complexity of crypto and DeFi, but wanted access to the 20% yield uh, that one part of the Terra ecosystem, uh, a DeFi protocol called Anchor, uh, was, was promoting. Uh, and so stable gains made it you know, fairly easy for users to deposit regular old US dollars uh, and get access to you know, this yield that is many multiples of what you could get in any sort of standard fiat bank account, you know, high yield account, money market account, what have you. And what stable gains was doing behind the scenes uh, was you know, turning those US dollars into various kinds of stable coins, including Terra, uh, and then yield farming it. And so some users of stable gains uh, lost something like 90% of the value of their deposits when that ecosystem collapsed. Um, and you know, on the one hand, I'm I'm not surprised that something like this has happened. What I'm curious about is sort of what what the response is going to be from other participants in the crypto ecosystem, as well, of course, as various entities in the regulatory uh, regime, you know, both in the U.S. and, and elsewhere. Um, you know, and, and with that, I'd be really curious, Edward, to hear, you know, from where you sit in the ecosystem, where you sort of sit in between these two worlds, right, crypto world and, and more consumer-oriented financial services products, you know, sort of what's your reaction to the Terra Luna story? What sort of impacts do you think it might have? Um, what are the sort of ramifications you have seen or you think may be coming? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been a been an interesting couple of weeks, to say the least. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the first thing that invariably will, will have to happen um, is, is around disclosures, right? If you talk about the bridging of two worlds, um, inherently calling something a stable coin, right? When it's not stable um, or has proven itself not stable, it is going to be challenging, right? So in the same way that there are restrictions around, for example, calling things a bank, I think there's going to be... a restrictions around calling things stable coins. And I think there's going to be certain regulations around if you are, for example, calling this a stable coin, um, it has to be, for example, held in cash or in um, you know, T-bills of less than 90 days or, or something to that effect. So I think firstly, the inherent lack of understanding that this was an algorithmic stable coin and calling it a stable coin by definition, I think we'll have to adjust. And I think there's definitely going to be some regulatory um, changes, especially around required disclosures and, and around um, even calling these things stable coins. Um, I, I don't know if I have a solution for what you call it. Maybe you just call it an algorithmic coin, um, but that, that's certainly going to have to adjust. Um, I think what has been interesting is the degree to which the industry, to some degree, has self-insured. So I think you will start to see, and I think the proposal that has been posted and, you know, Binance and Vitalik from Ethereum have, has been pretty, um, you know, pr pretty bullish on is the fact that effectively what is left in the reserves, because this was an algorithmic stable coin, so this wasn't backed by US dollars, it was held by um, other assets, what is remains in the reserve um, will basically be distributed to the 99% of wallets with the lowest amounts. So you're effectively making 99% of holders whole. 
I think that'll be pretty interesting to see. Although um, the Terra Foundation seems keen on effectively creating Terra 2.0, um, but based on the initial launch over the last 48 hours, that doesn't seem to be getting much traction. So, so I think in short, there's definitely going to be some regulatory adjustments. I think it's definitely going to force consumer-facing apps to be much more clear on disclosures around how we currently refer to things as algorithmic stable coins. Um, but you know, fundamentally, um, you know, the, the way that I've always explained yield in DeFi is effectively there is a true market risk-free rate, and then there is a risk rate. And you know, different stable coins and different DeFi protocols have different rates, and that's because of the risk rate. Um, do I believe that the interest, the risk, if you call it the, the risk-free interest rate right now, the true market rate, i.e. that not set by the Fed, is higher than what it's currently at? For sure. Um, so in theory, you can effectively arb the, the, the rates that exist. But what doesn't need to be forgotten is that there is a risk rate. And that's exactly what we've seen here. Um, so, you know, fundamentally, you're not getting 20% at a risk-free rate and things like stable gains anything stable i think is going to you know get a lot of scrutiny yeah i think those are really great points i mean and i i, I totally agree the the language is one in particular that i think is one worth thinking about a lot right i mean obviously uh terra calling it a stable coin was was something that was uh in retrospect pretty obviously um somewhat deceptive and and just not accurate to what the design of the product was and you know it makes me kind of think about just the associations that we have with these terms right like when we think about stable coins you know i mean to me the obvious analogy is you know the sort of crypto equivalent to like a federal reserve right and it's like the the sort of fundamental job to be done there is to be boring and you know edward to your point there are other stable coins out there that hold you know the vast 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 majority of their reserves or all of their reserves in cash or in t-bills yeah. and that is you know fundamentally a pretty stable model now are there other concerns around those products or what people might use them for sure but the product itself seems to be sort of providing the functionality that its name suggests and by the same token when you look at those front end apps that are built on top of the anchor protocol you know another word i think is worthy of some regulatory discussion and just discussion in the industry is deposits right a lot of them present what they're doing as hey deposit your cash here and from a consumer perspective um that term is kind of a loaded term even though we don't necessarily you know, assure people or assume that um, those deposits are going to be safe. Using the term deposits conjures ideas like FDIC insurance, which brings us the the proposal that you mentioned before that um, you know some of the the folks in the crypto ecosystem have been talking about to make you know Terra holders whole, which is kind of trying to provide sort of a uh, equivalent um, sort of uh, compensation that you might get if things were FDIC insured. And so I think it is very healthy long-term for the, the crypto ecosystem and for regulators to be coming in and having a discussion about what do we mean when we use these different terms? What expectations are we setting with consumers and with investors? And how are we building the appropriate you know, infrastructure around those terms so that if you're using the term deposits, that there is some type of way to make you know um, consumers or investors whole if there is a run on this stablecoin or on this protocol. Yeah, um, but I think I think on that point though, it's, it is really really critical to distinguish yeah. between 
a algorithmic, in inverted commas, stable coin, yeah. and what we have deemed a stable coin. So if you look Absolutely. at, for example, um, you know the way that Paxos or, for example, Circle yeah. um, manages the stable coin, there are, and these are these are held at one held held at regulated institutions. Yeah. Um, then, secondly, and, and without getting into the, the absolute nuance of FDIC insurance. Um, typically, there is a flow through of FDIC insurance on the manner in which you hold those stable coins, which can be pretty attractive as well. But obviously, FDIC insurance is only up to two hundred fifty thousand per account holder, and what is deemed an account holder can sometimes be disputed. Um, but fundamentally, you're holding US dollars, and that's the fundamental difference. And I think yep. also you've got to be aware of the politics here. Um, I think regulators and, and and Congress are pretty, you know. I think they want to put protections around stable coins and like what I would call true stable coins, i.e. they are backed by the underlying asset. But there is a reason why when you look at what Facebook did with Meta, with this basket of currencies, and then you look at what these algorithmic stable coins, those are fundamentally different. And they're also fundamentally different politically in the sense of you don't need a US dollar at some point, right? That, that's the fundamental difference. It's pegged to a US dollar. But if it's backed by algorithm, if it's an algorithmic stable coin or what starts, and I think that's where honestly Facebook was going to get to through a basket of currencies. Those those are the reasons why you know Facebook didn't push forward. There's a reason why I think regulate you know regulators and uh, candidly politicians will jump on this on the on this issue because they don't want algorithmic stable coins, regardless of whether or not it's stable or not. Um, you've got to be aware of the politics here as well. No doubt. I mean, I I think you know the. Um, the fact that there are key differences behind whether there's an asset backing or there's not an asset backing is one very obviously fundamental piece of it. I think the the second piece, and, and maybe this is outside the scope of, of uh, today's conversation, is you know what what is happening with those deposits once you've made them, right? So there's the backing asset, and then there's the prudential regulation of if I go and put my money into you know, a BlockFi or a Coinbase or whatever other company interest-bearing account, they're generating that yield from somewhere. And so, you know, how is that, you know, is that disclosed to the consumer who's depositing that money? And if so, how? And, you know, is it in a way that he or she understands? And then what, if any, oversight is there of how uh, Coinbase, BlockFi, you know, fill in your favorite crypto company, Celsius? Uh, is there any oversight into how that company is deploying those assets to generate yield comparable to the way there is in in the traditional banking system where there is prudential regulation and risk-weighted assets and tier one capital ratios and on and on and on. Yeah, but I think what this has shown, and just if you just look at the pure amount of our assets in these in these relatively small companies, um, there is a desire of customers for yield. Um and this is in a low interest rate environment. I mean, you've got to be aware of, you know, inflation is, you know, 8%. And if you put it into, I think if you put it into the Amex savings right now, you get 0.6%. So customers are frustrated that you are effectively losing 7% of your money on a yearly basis. And so that is, I think, one of the drivers towards risk. Now, this may become somewhat of a moot point if, if the Fed really does raise interest rates. But I, I do think that this shouldn't undercut the fact that DeFi and stable coins as part of that, um, actually having a true market risk-free rate is attractive. Um, now, the risk around it is sometimes unknown, and that's what's got to be focused on. 
Um, but I don't, I, I really hope that this isn't kind of used as a tool to shut down something that is pretty exciting and clearly adds value to customers if it's done in the right way. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the my my uh, biggest pet peeve, which, which Alex is probably familiar with, you know, is around <laughs> which is around sort of how some, you know, not all. And I realize that you know sometimes I paint with a with a broad brush. Obviously, the crypto industry, the DeFi, uh, you know, industry space is, is very wide with companies that are taking um, a variety of approaches, particularly when it comes to compliance and regulation, but just quickly circling back to one point Alex made, you know, there are a number of, of consumer facing products, you know, that go so far as to market, uh, their APY, you know, in a graph that directly compares them to Chase, Citibank, Goldman Sachs. And it's like, Hey, if I'm depositing my USD, I'm just going to keep saying BlockFi. At BlockFi, I would argue that it's potentially misleading or deceptive to present to a consumer, this is the same thing as depositing your money at JP Morgan Chase, because it is not the same thing. And if you disclose that in a way where the customer has sort of informed consent and understands what product they're buying, I don't have any problem with that. The, the part that sort of... Uh, raises the hair out on the back of my neck, which is standing up right now, is, you know, my 70-year-old mom sees, ooh, I can get five or 10% if I put my money here. It it says it's compared to comparable to Chase and Goldman Sachs. So it's it's safe. And the reality is it's not the same product. Uh, and so I think, you know, whether it is self-regulation or whether it is, you know, supervisory or enforcement actions, which inevitably will come if the current behavior continues, I think something needs to change in how some of these products are packaged and presented to end users. 100%. Custom education is quite literally everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and and that's actually a really good segue to our next topic. So I'm going to jump us into a new one, which is very, very related to this, which is... um, some headlines that were going around um, a little while back now um, around the incorporation of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency investing into 401ks, right? So, um, you know, Fidelity, as an example, uh, announced that they were going to make crypto available as a uh, investment option within the retirement plans that they offered uh, through employers. And the interesting bit that kind of didn't maybe make it into the headlines, because it's sort of a unhelpful nuance when you're trying to get people to click and read a story, is that the um, use of those crypto investment options within the retirement plans was going to be a decision that was left up to plan sponsors, meaning the employers. And what's interesting, if you dig into it a little bit, since this was announced in late April, is two things. One, um, the Department of Labor, which oversees all things relating to uh, employee-sponsored retirement accounts, uh, has cautioned uh, employers that offering crypto may present some additional risks and reminding those businesses that they have a fiduciary responsibility to their employees uh, when they act as plan sponsors. So kind of throwing maybe not ice cold water on the idea, but certainly cool water on the idea. And at the same time, uh, as far as I can tell, there's really only been one uh, business out there that has decided to offer uh, its employees crypto as a part of its retirement plan, uh, which is a company called MicroStrategy. Uh, You might 
recognize the term microstrategy, the name microstrategy, because they were actually uh, a company that's been making aggressive moves in crypto for a while. They actually decided a while back to use part of their corporate treasury to buy a bunch of Bitcoin and to sort of make a, make a play in that space as well. So I guess the thing I'm curious about, and you know, Edward, we'll go to you first on this, is um, it seems like there is a, to your point about helping customers find yield, right? There is a desire that I think comes from a very good place and is a very useful thing for consumers to try to present more options for generating yield for consumers. And this can be true from a kind of savings deposit, short-term perspective, as we were just talking about, but can also be true with um, investing and uh, with sort of long-term savings and trying to save for retirement, which is obviously what is sort of motivating the drive here. And I guess the thing I'm curious about is, you know, how should we think about the incorporation of something like cryptocurrency into long-term investment products like retirement, where, you know, to be candid, I think we know, or at least have a lot of data on how other types of investment products that get bundled in these retirement accounts, how they perform, right? Like we have decades of data on how the stock market performs, how different types of investments in the stock market tend to perform over time. And while there are no guarantees, they can allow for product design that gives you some level of uh, sort of confidence as an investor that depending on what your time scale is, you know, this might be what you want to choose. I haven't played around with Fidelity's um, cryptocurrency retirement planning tools. So I don't know what they do in that space, but just curious for your perspective on in a really fast moving, quick evolving space where we really don't know what's going to happen and where there has been quite a bit of volatility, how do you think about the incorporation of those investment options into sort of longer term accounts? Yeah, so I think you've got to view crypto effectively as an alt, an alternative asset. And I think it's really important that alternatives are included in people's portfolio, right? So yeah. this is not this is not novel, right? There's a concept of the sharp ratio, which effectively is risk weight in returns. And there's a bunch of articles um, and a bunch of analysis that's being done um, that including crypto, and this is you know talking one two percent in a portfolio of assets improves the sharp ratio and as money you know effectively that is a pretty compelling argument right you can talk about the risk of crypto yes there's a lot of risk in um for example some of the some of some of the assets in the stock market right if you look at some of the recent spacs you've seen 90 percent drops and you, you're not saying well let's just exclude spacs it, it, you, you've got to view this more holistically and you've got to view it in the sense of crypto being part of a subset of alts and alts being part of um, a, a broader um, portfolio. Again, you know, you've got to go back to what this is solving for. Um, and again, crypto is not, crypto is not the, the silver bullet. But I, the, the most recent stats that I saw was that 22% of Americans have less than $5,000 saved for retirement, and 15% have no retirement savings at all. Um, and that's pretty shocking. And so effectively, what crypto does and this is not me just saying it. This is, you know, you can Google crypto sharp ratio analysis. It improves the returns on a risk-adjusted um, score, right? So it's it, it's risk-adjusted. And that's how you've got to view all risk, which is how we were referring to things before. Um, and I, I think that's pretty compelling. I think 
just just so the listeners understand, with IRA accounts, you 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 can really only you, right now you, you you can't transfer crypto um into an IRA account. So you can't buy crypto at Coinbase, and then you can't just transfer that into your IRA account at Fidelity, right? So it's got to be cash. Right. And I think again, Elizabeth Warren, for example, has been very reciprocal on this point. The reality is, is that you're seeing customers do do this already, and secondly. Statistically, on a risk-adjusted basis, it makes sense. And so what we are doing is we're working with some very large traditional players that we already work with today and working to offer IRA accounts to these end players. And what it does is versus going to a dedicated and frankly quite small, um, for example, South Dakota trust where you move money into it and then you hold your retirement accounts there. If you put it as part of existing mechanisms, whether it be Fidelity or Interactive Brokers or wherever else, what that does is because they have an overarching view of your 401k, they can, for example, put certain restrictions in. They can say you're only allowed to put, let's say, 5% of your 401k into crypto. To me, that is better policy, that is better consumer protection than saying, hey, Fidelity, you can't allow this to happen. Whereas it's actually currently legal for me, for example, to move all my 401k into a relatively small entity and put all of my money into crypto. So what's better, right? And so I find it really strange that people say that, well, these groups shouldn't allow crypto at all into the portfolio. I think the conversation needs to be new, more nuanced. It needs to be nuanced around how does it affect risk scoring on a risk-adjusted return, rather, and, and, and how do we put things in around, for example, consumer protections. And the best consumer protections are going to come at existing places whereby they have the entire view on your entire portfolio. No, I think that's right. I mean, when when I was prepping for you know this podcast, you know, the the two sort of approaches to regulation um, you know, that sort of occurred to me is one, some of the disclosure-based stuff that that we've been talking about. And on the flip side, you know, two, you have sort of the accredited investor regime uh, for investing in things like private equity or venture capital or making angel investments in startups. And, you know, I don't, part of this is, is sort of, you know, ideological, right? What, what role should the government be playing? What role should regulators be playing? Should they be telling people, you know, no, this asset is too dangerous. You, you know, you should not even have the ability to invest in it. Or, you know, is the right approach a sort of disclosure informed consent based approach where, you know, if, as long as you're giving consumers, giving investors information, you know, they are or should be empowered to make the decisions that they, you know, feel or believe are right for them. You know, I, personally tend to fall somewhere in the middle, right? And and we don't, different category, but we don't need to look that far back to, you know, 2008 to see like, ooh, sometimes people were using products they did not understand that had a very negative outcome for them personally or as a family, as well as causing serious, you know, global macroeconomic problems. So, I mean, I, I realize my point of view isn't going to be everyone's point of view, but uh, I do think there's perhaps a middle ground. And, and Edward, sort of what you laid out as far as, you know, doing this within an existing 401k plan, you know, with appropriate disclosures, 
uh, in a way where the user, the investor's uh, outcomes are the KPI that's being maximized, right? And the reason I point that out is, you know, things like Robinhood, which positioned itself as democratizing access to an asset class, uh, but was set up in a way where Robinhood won when its users lost, aka when its users were actively trading, generating more payment for order flow. So I think there's a product design aspect, which is if you're going to say, yes, we're going to put crypto in, you know, whether it's in Cash App or inside a 401k at Fidelity, structuring it in a way where there is, you know, if not a legal fiduciary obligation, you know, something that resembles that as far as designing it in a way where you're maximizing the outcome of the consumer investor and not designing it in a way where the consumer loses so that the company wins. The disclosure component of making sure that, you know, this person knows what it is that they're putting their money in and and what risk goes along with that. Uh, And I think some of the sort of robo-advisory tools can do a good job of educating uh, Edward about exactly what you're saying, where it's like, okay, this is what your portfolio looks like now, but if you reallocated 3% to Bitcoin, Ethereum, and something else, this is what your risk-adjusted returns could look like over 20 or 30 years based on you know, a zillion Monte Carlo simulations or whatever. Um, and then lastly, you know, the sort of guardrails you mentioned, which is you know, not permitting somebody to allocate 100% of their 401k to crypto. Maybe it's set at you know, 3%, 5%, 10%, but, but putting in sort of a hard guardrail of like, as a fiduciary plan sponsor, you know, my employer doesn't think anybody should be permitted within the 401k to have more than 5% allocated to crypto. And if I want to go and buy more, you know, outside of that, there are there are IRA structures, like I think Alto IRA uh, does a does a cryptocurrency IRA or just sort of buying it in a sort of spot account are options available to me. So I, I, on this one, I'm not coming down as like, this is a terrible idea. It's more like this needs to be designed in a way that is careful and cognizant of humans' uh, cognitive behavioral biases and shortcomings with appropriate disclosures, with appropriate product design, you know, and appropriate guardrails. And I mean, I guess, Edward, any, any, reaction to that before we, we move on to our last topic yeah i mean look there has to be risk in order for there to be return i mean it's 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 finance 101 but it has to be managed um and and so i think that that's absolutely critical i think also you've got to be cognizant as well i can already put assets into my 401k that actually have a larger historic volatility than for example bitcoin i can already do that Right, so I, I think I think sometimes we we focus too much on well, Bitcoin is risky. Well, how risky is it relative to other assets? How does that and not just risk, but how does the volatility relative to return weigh up? I think that's what's what's important. Um, I think you're absolutely right. The consumer protection has to be there, but let's be very clear on where we are today. I could put all of my 401k into a single stock that has historical volatility greater than Bitcoin. Um, and so I think there's a broader discussion around, um, you know, protections and other pieces. And I think this is different to the terror point because people understand that Bitcoin is, is in inverted commas, risky. Um, where, 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 where it falls afoul is something where it's perceived to be a stable coin. And those are two fundamentally different things. 
I think with that, Alex, do you want to transition us to our final topic for today? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we we couldn't let Edward go uh, without doing a little bit of a look forward into the the crypto space. I mean, this is sort of uh, like I think many people sort of my first go around being a sort of close observer of the crypto ecosystem. Um, and uh, I know that for folks who've been in the crypto space a little longer, um, the occasional winter is something to be expected or even potentially welcome. And I think, you know, what's interesting just looking around is that um, it does seem like there's kind of a slowdown happening across the board, right? Um, NFT values and activity have dropped uh, fairly precipitously across a lot of different, uh, you know, exchanges. Um, I saw that uh, the guy who invested in Jack Dorsey's first tweet as an NFT was having a tough time reselling it. So I think NFTs were seeing a bit of a pullback on uh, DeFi. There's been a significant uh, drop in total value locked. Obviously, everything that's happened with Terra hasn't helped with that. And just sort of a general pullback on, you know, cryptocurrency prices overall. So, you know, I guess the the thing I'd love to get, you know, both of your perspectives on, Edward, to start with you is, um, you know, do you think we're headed into sort of a prolonged crypto winter? Uh, and if so, you know, what do you think the impacts on the crypto ecosystem will be? And then more broadly, the impact on really anyone who's building financial services products for consumers, the type of use cases that you enable at Zero Hash. Yeah, I mean, look, we we started the business in 2017, and then we went through a crypto winter. Um, honestly, the, I think there's a thought in, in in startups now that sometimes having too much money actually builds worse businesses. Um, so I think this it, this isn't going to mean that businesses are going to stop building or, or creating. Um, we've been in the space for a long time. We when things got very very frothy in not just crypto, but in the entire market. I think we kept our heads. We 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 stayed relatively, um, you know, within the bounds of what we felt was reasonable. Um, and so when things like this happen, when there's shocks to the system, we taper. We're not massively changing course, and that's how I think you have to build a long-term sustainable business. Um, and you know, again, just because NFTs have fallen doesn't mean that NFTs as an asset class will disappear. I think there's a lot of Look, am I personally bullish about JPEGs, for example, you know, being 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 the future of NFTs? No, I, I think NFTs are going to fundamentally shift into something that the ownership of them gives you certain rights and privileges. And that's what I think is really, really powerful when you look at Web3, is that an NFT is not going to be a picture anymore. It's going to be that the fact that a distinct ownership of that NFT gives you the rights to something. And that's how it's going to evolve. Bear in mind, we're literally in year two of nfts even being something that we speak about um, i remember in 2017 when there was a big depression of prices people said crypto as an asset class is gone that's clearly been disproven and we're not having that conversation now so i think we're gonna have the same conversation with nfts now will nfts look the same in two years time as they are today 100 not but when you look at the crypto market even a year ago it doesn't look the same as it does today if you look at the top 20 assets today versus a year ago um, 11 of them are the same, 11. So there's been nine assets, you know, which have dramatically shifted um, out of the top 20. So this is just part of an evolution. We're still in the early innings. Um, I think a lot of good businesses can be built. 
Um, I actually think sometimes better businesses, better long-term businesses can be built when there's a little bit of a of a of, of a pullback. Um, and so, you know, we're still very, very bullish about about this space. Um, and I think there's going to be some interesting opportunities. Yeah, I 100%, you know, agree with you, Edward, about the, you know, having too much money can be a problem when from, from a business building perspective, because it, it tends to um, make you not have to make choices, right? Uh, as opposed to having a little bit more discipline in how you think about doing prioritization uh, and focusing on, you know, things like unit economics, et cetera. Uh, so I think, you know, in, in that regard, um, you know, the environment seems to be changing a bit at the moment. And I think that that will be uh, a net positive for the kinds of companies that we see get funded um, and the kinds of companies we see survive. I mean, I think looking, you know, zooming, zooming way out, you know, looking at not just what's happening in the crypto markets, but also, you know, you mentioned SPACs earlier, SPACs and public market, uh, public market equities, you know, the big run-up we saw in things like GameStop, things like AMC, you know, I don't want to say these are all the same thing, but I think that there are some interrelated trends here as far as retail participation, both in you know traditional equities as well as crypto, NFTs, etc. Um, and you know, this is for many of the people participating in these markets, sort of the first bout of inflation, material inflation they've ever seen, and that includes me, by the way. Um, the first major correction uh, or bear market that they've ever seen. Uh, and so I think that you know we may see or we are seeing you know a change in some of this behavior. And I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, right? If we see some of these you know, quote unquote tourists uh, exit exit the crypto space, exit the sort of active retail trading space, um, you know, I think that that, one, you know, hopefully reduces some of the problems, you know, we've seen with just endemic pyramid scheme, Ponzi scheme, straight up scams, which don't reflect particularly positively on the crypto ecosystem as a whole. So hopefully there's a chance for that to sort of tamp down a bit. And you know, just because uh, the dollar value of these assets of these tokens has declined uh, doesn't mean that people aren't continuing to build. So my call it, I don't know, half half prediction, half uh, hope is that this correction uh, in in the crypto market sort of burns away, you know, the whatever eighty percent of the worst projects that you know have no differentiation. Have have nothing novel about them and are just sort of a cynical marketing ploy, capitalizing on you know Logan Paul or Kim Kardashian or Floyd Mayweather or whichever celebrity is out you know shilling some project, so that you know what is left standing are the things that actually generate some sort of value, and that becomes something that is more durable and more defensible over time. Um, I guess with with that, Alex, do you want to sort of uh, wrap wrap up for us? I was just going to say, hey, man, Jason, I totally agree. I I think that's right, and um, you know, I think going back to a point Edward made earlier, you know, the big sort of unknown question that I think we'll just have to see how it plays out is how does interest and activity around crypto 
uh, uh, translate to a focus on what consumers are looking for in a, a different macroeconomic environment, right? Rates are going up. Uh, we'll see how fast they go up and how uh, much that continues. We'll see what the impact is on inflation, but how risk on everyone is as we head into this new era of crypto is the sort of key question that's going to be keeping me up and something that I'm going to be watching closely. But um, we will go ahead and end it there. Uh, Jason, thank you as always. And Edward, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I personally learned a lot, so really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And, um, you know, you can find me, uh, it's just Edward Woodford on LinkedIn, or you can shoot me a note at edward at zerohash.com. Thank you so much, Edward. This has been great. Uh, until next time, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.